wait a second, we've done this before in the real estate industry, right? Like mineral rights and water rights and, and timber rights are, are the wealth of nations. And in the future and today, we believe that energy rights are going to be the, the aspect or the way to facilitate on-site energy development. Welcome to another episode of Young Professionals in Energy Podcast. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm here with Saxon McKinman, my co-host for today, who's actually been on a podcast previously. Saxon, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. You know, I've been on the podcast once and happy to, to contribute on the interview side. So happy to be here. Yeah, awesome. Stoked to, stoked to have you as a co-host for today. So uh, we are inter- interviewing Chris Pollock. Chris, you want to give a brief overview of kind of who you are and and what company you work for and what you're doing? Absolutely. Uh, Chris Pollack, founder and CEO of EPR Squared. It's uh, Energy Producing Retail Realty. We are an energy rights developer. And what that means is that we're taking a real estate approach to developing energy rights for existing buildings and property owners. Yeah, super cool idea. I can't wait to dive into it. Chris and I had met at the TPH conference here in Denver. Colorado, which was yeah phenomenal conference. We got a lot of great guests with a lot of awesome ideas that came out of that. Um, really, really excited to dive in and explore kind of the work that you're doing now. But before we get to that, I'd love to start with uh, where you started. Uh, how'd you start your career? Where'd you go to school? Um, let us know a little bit more about you. Yeah, I mean, uh, going back to, I guess, the early days, I definitely um, uh, can go back to you know being raised as an immigrant kid being born in West Germany and then in Southern California growing up. I uh, went to school in Manhattan Beach, went to UC Berkeley, did a triple major, uh, did an internship at JPL before that. And uh, to be quite frank, I uh, have been uh, in California for most of my life, but I am you know, from Eastern Europe. My parents were actually escaping communism and, and martial law. So it's been a pretty exciting you know, background and story and, and to you know, be able to be fortunate enough to, to live in Southern California and to do something that I love and I'm passionate about has been pretty awesome. So from that standpoint, um, you know, there's a lot, lot to dig in there, but uh, uh, UC Berkeley, <laughs> yeah, triple major. That's crazy. Yeah. When, uh, when did you move from uh, West Germany? So when I was a, basically when I was a kid came over, but my parents' yeah. uh, uh, background education wasn't accepted. It was under communist Poland at the time. So they both had master's degrees and had to redo it. So I was sent back to Poland to live with my family while they redid their, their degrees. And uh, I lived there until second grade, essentially. And oh, so, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's quite wild to think about it now, but a uh, little kid from Poland coming to, to Southern California and to the waves and uh, learning how to surf and play water polo is definitely not not uh, the story you hear like, uh, not often, you know. Man, I bet I bet it was fantastic, though, for kind of framing your viewpoint of the world and giving you an appreciation of all sorts of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you kind of realize that there's a lot of uh, opportunities here in, in the U.S. and in Southern California, particularly, and in every way, shape or form that just don't exist in, in Eastern Europe and in a you know developing country and especially one that at the time was behind the communist curtain, you know. So very fortunate to be here and really stoked to be talking with you guys today because, you know, this is something that I've been now working on for over a decade. And I really do think energy rights development is the future of how we're going to build out our, our microgrids, our next generation grids. That's awesome. It's a triple major. What'd you, what'd you major in? 
Oh, great question. So I was actually a, a STEM nerd growing up, but when I got to college, when I got to Cal, I um, I really went towards a direction that I wasn't really focused on, which was business, political economy, and Slavic languages. So uh, from that standpoint, I uh, I went in, I was in Haas as an undergrad. I did political economy, which is a um, effectively international relations, where you're mixing political science and economics and and trying to see how the world works from a macro perspective. And then uh, Slavic languages, because you needed a language for PIS or for political economy. And uh, I ended up um, being able to uh, be part of a program at UC Berkeley that was actually previously run by a Polish Nobel laureate that I was a really big fan of as a kid. So Czesław Miłosz used to be a professor at Cal, and I was um, I was just really stoked to be able to be a part of that history. So That's incredible. Love it. So Chris, what, uh, what got you interested in the energy industry? So for me, you know, I got out of college and I got into uh, commercial real estate acquisitions and really worked on buying projects, uh, redeveloping them and making them worth more, either through you know, CapEx improvements that in- increased NOI and that uh, were able to effectively raise rents as, uh, as we made the properties better. And from that standpoint, you know, I was always interested in energy and clean technology and hardware and software from a young age, right? I, I interned at JPL as a junior in high school and worked for an engineer working on telescopes and was in, you know, on a floor with other engineers that were talking about some of the most amazing research being done almost 20 years ago where, you know, you hear about it today, you're like, oh, that's just happening. It's like, no, that was 20 years ago. So, you know, being in a, a, a place like that where you're able to be a sponge and just seeing how much... Um, value there is in in terms of the energy uh, sector and in terms of technology and and the research needed to to actually move things forward was really exciting. And so when I was working in the commercial real estate industry, we were buying projects. I was uh, on a team that bought $2 billion worth of real estate in about 18 months. I was actually responsible for 500 million of that in the Midwest. And we would put you know, essentially CapEx projects together, value add proposals, business plans for these properties to go from C to B or B to A or, you know, some sort of um, improvement into the property. And, you know, that is traditional commercial real estate. But for me, what really excited me was all the new ideas, all the new technologies that were out there. So I'd always add these addendums and these addendums would always have some hardware or software technologies to increase NOI. And unfortunately, at the time, the principal and, and our and property owners in general are very risk averse. So they always had a capital, a technology or O&M risk associated with it. And what I mean by that is that most property owners would much more willingly do a project if they got their money back in about three years. I mean, that's a broad stroke assessment, but that's really how they make their decisions. Uh, and if that doesn't work, I, then, I empathize. That's that's a good amount of time. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. If you don't get your money back in three years, then, you know, wait until the technology gets better. And, and that kind of comes to the second point where there's a deflationary dilemma from a property owner's perspective, because any technology that you're going to integrate, there's a very good argument to be had that it's going to be cheaper or better in a year, right? I mean, we all know that technology gets better, right? So in that respect, there's always a reason to, to wait a year. And, you know, that causes a problem and a friction in terms of actual deployment. And finally, the O&M cost, right? I mean, you're basically looking at um, a company that's going to have to hire folks that know what they're doing, which are going to you know be more valuable in the, in the sector. So, from an energy perspective, I just got really excited about being able to align the interests from a capital, technology, and O&M perspective and allow property owners to really lead the charge in terms of this new energy transition. Excellent. And just to clarify on a couple of acronyms, uh, O&M, operating and maintenance, right? 
Yep. Net operating okay. income for NOI. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And from a commercial real estate perspective, that's really kind of the um, back of the napkin approach of, of figuring out value. And that's what's your NOI over the, you know, the investment amount or development amount. And that's your cap rate. Depending on what that cap rate is, you'll, you know, either invest or not invest, depending on, you know, what your risk tolerance is. But yeah, the, um, the basics of, of real estate can be um, described in a way that allow you to kind of plug in that square peg and round hole of the energy industry and with commercial real estate being on site, right? We've already got utility easements that are functioning as a, uh, a way to fund infrastructure development. So this is now a way to do that in a distributed manner. Chris, yeah, this is this is all great to hear. And, you know, I've been in in the kind of renewable clean tech space for seven years now. But, you know, obviously this industry has been rapidly evolving. And, you know, to your point, kind of capital expenditure and the timeline to make a return on your investment is is obviously critical for some of these projects. So interested to hear your perspective uh, as cost curves for distributed generation and, and microgrid technology has has come down over the years. When would you say uh, you know, you kind of saw the trend where it, it warranted kind of some some, uh, you know, more viable projects, you know, relatively speaking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way that we look at the space is uh, is a little bit unique, right? We're looking at it from a real estate lens. And so from that perspective, we're really boiling it down to what we call a kilowatt unit breakdown. So whatever the technology is, whether it's solar or storage or mini geothermal or mini wind, you know, any sort of project we're, or any sort of uh, technology, we are completely agnostic. But what we do do is that we take this real estate lens and we say, OK, what is the total development cost for a one kilowatt project unit, so to speak? Put that on the denominator. And in the numerator, you've got the amount of kilowatt hours per year that you're able to generate or to provide with that technology multiplied by the cost. If you get, you know, a cap rate that is a premium to the existing commercial real estate underlying that asset, then it makes sense to invest all day long. And what's very interesting in terms of approaching this from, a, you know, a real estate perspective is that you're underwriting it not as a fixed term, fully amortizing piece of equipment. What you're doing is you're rising the income streams because what you do, what you have now is a real estate interest and collateral underlying that that technology. So you're really able to double the value of the same project, uh, depending on which way you look at it from a real estate perspective or from a personal property perspective. So does that mean you might be able to increase the value by getting a better interest rate? Did I hear that correctly? Right. I mean, you're you're essentially opening up the investor universe to folks that are, you know, much more long term oriented and have a lower cost of capital uh, based off of you know occupancy risk rather than credit offtaker risk. So what's really interesting and one of the things that, you know, I think Saxon and I will agree on is over the past 10 years, the cost of developing these projects has gone down tremendously. I mean, probably upwards of 80 percent. You know, when we were first starting, it was like five to six bucks a lot uh, for, for doing, you know, uh, commercial or, or even utility scale uh, jobs. And these days, you know, you're you're brushing up against a dollar a lot for commercial or for utility scale solar. You're around two to two fifty a watt for commercial solar, and for residential, you're somewhere around three to four dollars a watt these days. And it, you know, all depends on cost of labor and soft costs and acquisition costs and what have you. But at the end of the day, you know, it's no longer really a um, 
cost of the technology, it's more of the cost of integration, the, the soft costs involved, the labor costs involved. And, you know, to be quite frank, those aren't going to really decrease over the you know coming years. Um, labor costs are only getting more expensive. Uh, soft costs and interconnection, as we've seen with NEM3 in California, are only going to get more expensive. And, you know, from that perspective, there's a real big impetus and a really big opportunity to get started now to get started uh, building solar projects and storage projects on existing buildings, you know, where the energy is actually being consumed, generating the efficiencies so that you don't have to, you know, transmit and lose a lot of the energy that you've produced. And uh, yeah, we're, um, you know, we're really excited on where the technology has been, but even more excited about how this implementation and how we're going to be able to interconnect a lot of these, you know, small microgrid projects in the future. Awesome. I want to dive into a few more of those details real quick, but before we do, I was hoping to comment briefly on TPHU's conference, right, where we met their D5 kind of momentum conference. Uh, I had a fantastic time, lots of great takeaways, lots of great information, new new ideas, but I'm curious about your take. What do you think of the conference and what's uh, one topic or idea that you discovered or digested that was interesting or fun? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to have to make an admission here. This was the first existing energy industry conference I've ever been to. So oil and gas slash, you know, uh, hydrogen, next energy transition, uh, mini nuclear. I mean, the breadth and spectrum of topics that were discussed at the conference were just amazing. I mean, you really got a sense that the existing players in the market are no longer wondering if they're wondering how and what. And that was like my biggest takeaway. And I was very excited about that after the conference, because at this point, the biggest, I think, challenge that we have in the industry and in this next energy transition is the interim period, right? Like we all, we know where we're at today. There's a vision of a future that we're getting to. But between here and there, there's going to be a lot of dislocation. There's going to be a lot of start and stops. There's going to be a lot of folks that are, you know, not necessarily sure how to manage that logistically and operationally. And what I got gathered from the conference was that that skill set and that experience is there. I mean, these folks that have been doing this for the past 20, 30, 50 years, some of them even 100 years. I mean, we had Chevron represented there and they were talking about, hey, we have a whole division on the next energy transition. And, you know, from that perspective, you know, a lot of folks might look at it as, oh, you know, this is a old world, you know, traditional industries that are just trying to, you know, hold on to, you know, what they have. But in reality, it's the exact opposite. They're the ones saying the puck's going that direction. We're going in that direction, too. But you can't just drop what you've got. Right. Like you've got to be able to figure out the steps in between. Otherwise, you know, we're going to have problems from a um, from an economic standpoint on a on a very micro level where folks aren't able to get power to their buildings. I love that. Yeah, I'll, I'll s- try and summarize that. And I love how you phrased it. it. It's not the energy transition is the question is not if and when it's how and what. Right. I mean, that was, that was a big takeaway for me, too, is that there was a lot of legitimate players that are very educated and very intelligent, many of them very well financed, uh, that are actively investing in this space, yep. which is empowering and fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and it goes to show that, you know, I think that we've gotten, you know, past that moment of, you know, going back, right? Like we're not going to go back. Everybody's already interested in, wow, this is actually going to be a, you know, a great opportunity to to develop that next grid, right? I mean, we've been, the entire 20th century economy has been built on a 
utility grid or a utility system, electric grid that has been around for a hundred years, over a hundred years, right? Like it really hasn't had that much innovation from the standpoint of uh, CapEx and infrastructure and transmission and distribution um, innovation, but we are poised to have a lot of that in the next 20, 30, 40 years. And, you know, we know that this is uh, an up and coming space and it's a great opportunity, I think, you know, either from the utility scale or from the distributed scale. Right. And just to kind of piggyback off on that, you know, one of the, the themes that I'm seeing in the market from the kind of wholesale perspective is technology and demand is almost outpacing the existing constructs to to adopt all this new technology and, and support for, you know, renewable technologies and, and other system integration. You know, the interco- interconnection queues across North America, you know, have way more capacity in them than they can feasibly study or bring online in the next, you know, three to five year outlook. So, you know, we're, we're really excited about those existing systems to kind of help us do what we want to do, which is build, build, uh, build new projects. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in terms of the queues, specifically here in California, you've got you've got companies that are trying to upgrade their buildings and they're telling us that the grid, the utility companies are actually telling them that they're going to have to wait two to five years. So you've got a building that needs a 4000 amp upgrade that is being told that you need to wait two to five years for us to get back to you. This was about six months ago, about two, three weeks ago. We've been told that it's about five to seven years. And so if you think about it that way, there is an immense market opportunity to come in and try to help upgrade these buildings. It's just a matter of how, right? And how are you going to do it and what technology are you going to use to do that? So why why is there a backlog, Chris? Do you know? I think it's why, a com- why five to seven years? Yeah, no, I think it's a combination of factors, right? I mean, you've got all the fires that have been going on. You've got the grid that has been just not necessarily neglected, but a lot of CapEx projects have been pushed down the road. And it's one of those things where all of a sudden you've got a uh, an economy or you know a political environment where you're pushing electric vehicles and building electrification and new technologies that require more energy. And you're not upgrading the grid. The grid hasn't been upgraded yet. So if you're trying to take more energy into places that not that did not normally have that amount of electrical load or demand, it's just going to take time for them to get to it. And they're just, you know, they're backlogged, unfortunately. They're just um, not there to do it in a timely manner. Fascinating. So you, you've identified an opportunity in self-sourcing or self-generating projects. So if you're a customer, electricity customer, and the utilities in California now have such a backlog. And presumably, I've, I've worked with several utilities before, and Saxon obviously is heavily involved with interfacing with them all the time. They're slow-moving creatures. And if a private customer can come in and have their own generation source, then there could be tremendous value there. Absolutely. And it actually aligns the interest of the utility and of the actual user, because at the end of the day, the utility wants to have the most efficient grid they possibly can. So if you're producing power on site and then utilizing the grid as a as a battery, so to speak, then there is value there, too. You know, the, the utility company, you know, a lot of times folks are, are looking at them as trying to protect their own or protect the the past. And, and the reality is, is that developing energy generation at the nodes of, of consumption is going to be a benefit to all parties involved. I mean, it, it's just going to increase the efficiency and decrease the capex necessary for uh, for upgrades to the grid. On that point of you know value that you see from a project, uh, what are some of the drivers you know that you look for when deciding to go you know do a rooftop type project on a, 
in a current utilities service territory. Can you kind of speak to some of those factors that you see value in and, you know, what parts of the, the country that's happening in currently? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's, again, a triangulation of factors in the sense that, you know, obviously you want to be building solar specifically in areas that have a lot of sunlight. Uh, that is, you know, by far the most obvious uh, uh, um aspect that we got to look at. Uh, but the other ones are much more real estate and energy price linked, right? So you've got the energy pricing in certain utility districts has been subsidized because they have a, a large industrial base and, you know, folks are paying, you know, probably less than, you know, 10 cents, maybe even less than five cents a kilowatt hour sometimes for, for power, maybe even lower, right? On the wholesale market, you're, you know, hearing people selling or signing PPA contracts at a penny or two pennies these days. I mean, it's pretty wild to think about. Um, but from a real estate perspective, you've also got to take a look at, you know, what what is a load on site, right? What kind of, what's the usage? Is it a large 1 million square foot warehouse that has LED lighting and skylights and very low energy demand. I mean, it, it's a great place to build, but it's not a great place to use power. You still have the same problem of transmission and distribution. So from our standpoint, we believe that, that the, the properties that have the most potential are the ones that are using the most power currently. So you've got your multifamily uh, apartment buildings where you've got a commercial type of operation with retail electricity pricing, which is kind of the, the unicorn in the industry. The biggest challenge there has always been operations and maintenance, uh, O&M. How do you bill 100, 1,000 tenants at the same scale as a utility company? And we've been seeing some really cool prop tech and energy tech uh, companies out there, uh, SaaS companies that are tackling that. But, um, you know, it's still evolving and it's still growing. Um, other properties that we look at, you know, big box retail grocery um, shopping centers, right? These are anchors uh, that are well-respected, that are there for 20, 30 years. And a lot of times folks are looking at this old retail um, sector and thinking that it's not going to exist because of Amazon and what have you. But then you see Amazon buying them up on the cheap. So at the end of the day, there is value uh, for retail um, in, a, in a commercial and in a uh, suburban setting, even in an urban setting where – they need a lot of energy because of HVAC and refrigeration and, and other energy demands. Uh, other projects that we've actually done in the past are uh, commercial multi-tenant projects. And that's really where energy rights uh, make a difference because folks that are owning the property aren't necessarily paying for the power. Those that are in the property are not there for 20 years, right? They're usually there for five to seven years. And because of that, there's this misalignment of interests and um, of incentives for the property owner and the tenant. And as a third-party energy rights developer, we're able to buy out that energy right, the capital technology and O&M risks, and then align all the interests, provide the tenant a discount, provide the owner a percentage rent, and have our investors get a market rate return on an infrastructure project. You know, it's just a, it's just the uh, the difference is that it's a smaller project, right? We're talking about a couple million dollars, maybe ten million dollar max, so that you don't have to do upgrades to the transmission and distribution lines versus you know doing hundred megawatt projects in the desert that are going to be two to three hundred million dollars in cost. Right? Are you seeing any kind of economies of scale from doing uh, various projects in a, a proximal region, uh, or is that not kind of factored in on a project to project basis? Absolutely. You know, what we've been seeing is that the uh, the megawatt to two megawatt scale is kind of where you get the, the biggest pop and anything under that, you're you know still kind of um, a retail consumer. But once you get you know a little bit higher and the size of your projects, you're getting really 
really good economies of scale on modules, on inverters, on um, on even labor costs, right? And if you can uh, aggregate your projects in certain locations and you know effectively close on a quarterly basis, you can even drive further efficiencies. And we are hoping in the future to get you know, and this is obviously a dream of mine. I don't think it's going to be overnight, but utility scale pricing for commercial projects, because we're able to take that, you know, approach that the utility uh, scale projects do, which is we're doing 100 megawatts in this area. And yes, you know, they might be on 100 different properties, you know, one megawatt each. But at the end of the day, you know, all of the equipment can be bought and aggregated at a, at a lower cost. Uh, the labor can be managed in a way where it's uh, very efficient and, you know, has a long-term planning component to it, right? Um, and, you know, it's uh, it's exciting, right? I mean, the scaling, uh, you know, 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 one megawatt projects, it's it's a daunting task, but we have the technology and we have the resources and, and we have, you know, everything in play right now. It's just a matter of putting it together. Excellent. Yeah, I think that's a good transition, Chris, to kind of dive into into your current role. Uh, let us know kind of what EPR squared is. Well, but what is uh, what does EPR stand for? Yeah, so EPR uh, stands for energy producing retail. And when I was first coming up with this idea of separating out the energy rights, uh, like a property interest similar to mineral rights and oil rights and air rights and cell tower rights, the idea was that we need to define the space that we're utilizing on site in order for it to be quote unquote real property. And so that real property, what it does is it's energy producing retail. We're producing it on site and we're providing it to the users on site. So we're trying to be as you know academic, I guess, uh, on the on the subject as we can. Um, that said, we'll, we'll, with uh, EPR Squared being the name of the company, we've definitely run into uh, questions on whether or not we're rebranding anytime soon. <laughs> so. We uh, we've created a category. We have a company that's developing the category. We've got you know projects under our belt and a platform that we're developing on a, a, a software perspective so that anybody can develop their energy rights. But uh, you know EPR for us is kind of the process to develop energy rights. Energy rights in and of themselves have always existed. They just really haven't been defined, right? And, yeah. you know, PPAs and solar leases and and pace financing is you know technically developing energy rights just you know, from a real prop or from a personal property perspective, not a real property perspective. Yeah. And th this idea, when you first described it to me, uh, sounded very foreign and uh, alien to me. I was like, well, wait, what? S separating energy producing or property rights? And I mean, if you think about it, all property to humans is kind of made up, right? It's we, we artificially design or say, yeah, this human owns this thing. Um, but then that makes it more real, right? And for, for all the oil and gas folks that might listen in, it's I compare it to mineral rights, right? Where somebody may have access to the surface to build a house, but then separate the mineral rights and the access to develop and exploit the minerals in the subsurface. Um, you know, and we've, we've sectioned those off and defined those very well, at least in the United States, right? Um, and you you described it as being similar to mineral rights, but just the ability and the right to develop an energy producing area or property, uh, which I found fascinating. I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah, and what's really interesting from a uh, from the perspective of mineral rights, you know, mineral rights are technically finite, right? I mean, there's only so many minerals in a certain you know area of of um, of real estate. However, energy rights are not. I mean, if you think about it from a renewable perspective, I mean, energy rights are 
what you know kind of goes in line with the the concept of the infinite game right i mean we're we're generating power utilizing space on a property their energy producing retail space from a source that is going to outlive all of us right the sun right and obviously storing that and the intermittency factors and uh the baseload component of uh on-site generation and microgrids is absolutely critical but you know from a from a big picture perspective i mean it's it's pretty cool that we're able to you know, flip the model on its head and really drive value for uh, property owners. So how'd you, how'd you come up with the idea? Oh man, hitting my head against the cement wall way too many times, I think, but uh, really it came out from um, working on the acquisition side in the commercial real estate industry and realizing that these capital technology and O&M risks exist. And they just, you know, they're not, it's not necessarily that property owners won't move forward because there are a lot that will and they will take the risk necessary but from a market perspective property owners are you know fiduciaries to their investors their investors are invested in the the real estate they want to make sure that the owner focuses on their core competency their core business function which is leasing space and operating a building now when you look at energy costs relative to operating expenses for a property owner they are usually around 10 to 20 percent so any sort of improvement that you do on the property level is not going to have this um, extreme effect on value. You'll you'll be able to increase the value of a property by five to ten percent, depending on how much energy is used and what the price is. But that's not really going to move the needle for a lot of property owners. You know, it might be too much work for uh, for that amount of value. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, on the buy side, capital technology on numbers. On the sell side, you know, I went from the acquisition world, and that was pre-GFC or pre-Great Financial Crisis, and went to the other side of the table and was helping uh, institutional owners identify which portfolio properties uh, need to be called or sold, which ones are going to be all right, and which ones are on the you know are on the fence are going to need some sort of a, a business plan, a, a capital X, a capex uh, plan to to upgrade the operational systems or increase uh, rents and. You know, seeing that it existed on both sides of the table at, you know, a private capital and at an institutional level made it very apparent that there needs to be some sort of a solution in order to accelerate the deployment on site. And, you know, I just kept coming back to the idea that, you know, these risks exist. You can't get rid of them, but maybe you can buy them. Right. And from that standpoint, that's, I think, really where the the nexus and the and the connection was made for me is that wait a second, we've done this before in the real estate industry, right? Like mineral rights and water rights and, and timber rights are, are the wealth of nations, right? You've got oil and gas rights that are, you know, extracted and are the you know cornerstone of the 20th century economy. You've got air rights that, you know, allowed for uh, commercial air travel, right? You've got cell tower rights that are literally the cornerstone of our data infrastructure today. And, you know, in the future and today, we believe that energy rights are going to be the uh, the aspect or the, the, the way to facilitate on-site energy development. Let me take a stab at trying to summarize what, what I took away from that then. There might be some arbitrage associated with the risk of developing an energy product on a property such that a property owner, you know, somebody that owns a warehouse or a giant mall or some retail space. Uh, or even residential space, apartment building, may say, well, we don't have the expertise or in-house ability to develop an energy project. And when we look at our bottom line, it's there's maybe only a five to ten percent gain, and it's you know there's a high risk that we'll mess it up and and lose money on it. But 
there are professionals and potential developers that exist that have the expertise that might be able to come in and you know those projects may be such small scale that as a one-off there might may not be tremendous value but in aggregate if you can aggregate enough of them uh, then you can exploit that opportunity and you're you're thinking or advising and uh, developing an instrument um, or a vehicle to allow people to do that absolutely and what's interesting about that as well is that most of the properties in the united states at least you know 50 percent of them are in the long tail so to speak 50 percent of the rentable square footage is with smaller property owners that might own 10 to 20 or 30 properties maybe 50 max the rest are owned by institutions and large groups that have a lot of capital and the expertise to potentially do this themselves but the question is can they do it effectively can they do a, a non-core business function that um you know will improve the value of the property but is not something that they are really equipped to to do or have the economies of scale to to do it well and you know that's really exciting for us because institutional owners could potentially use our platform to go develop their own energy rights and then you can have third-party developers helping out the uh, the mid cap or the the smaller cap uh, property owners to to go develop their energy rights as well and then you know essentially aggregate and, and create economies of scale one question that I had on you know some of these projects that you're going out and deploying you know is the appetite from these large real estate owners and developers to own most of these assets and then kind of employ a third party service to operate and maintain these these projects or are you seeing any appetite to you know, enter into a power purchase agreement and to essentially lease the equipment and reap the benefits on a variable basis. What uh, are you seeing in the market on that front? Yeah, so there's the there's a bifurcation between kind of that institutional and the private capital side of the world. I believe that you know the institutions are much more poised to do this in house. I mean, they've got large engineering teams. They've got uh, you know capex and you know development experience where they can apply it to you know energy rights development i mean it's essentially a, a rooftop and electrical project you just have to understand what the components are and what space you can use and what you can't do but on the smaller scale right that companies that don't have these large teams in-house uh, there's a huge opportunity uh, a massive opportunity to go develop energy rights on, on their behalf with regard to PPAs, though, that's a little bit of a different question because what we're talking about then is you know, how do we maximize the value using you know, capital, right? Like what is the capital structure that will allow property owners to move forward? And from that standpoint, PPAs, solar leases, and PACE financing all kind of come back to the same problem, and that is that it is a 25-year term a 25-year guarantee and obligation by the property owner usually uh, that hits the balance sheet. So you're now talking about a property owner that may own the building you know, for five to 10 years, but has to sign a 25-year commitment. Now, I don't know about you, but I definitely don't buy an iPad for 25 years. And you know, most owners and most developers, right? Like once you build that, that project for a PPA, you're not really incentivized to upgrade it. You're not really incentivized to put in the new technology in three to five years. But as we talked about earlier, right, the cost of the uh, the, the panels, at least, right, from five to six bucks a lot in terms of developing solar and, you know, seven to 10 years ago, going down to, you know, two to 250 a watt, an owner doesn't want to miss out on that. 
right? And so from that perspective, you've got to kind of understand that a property owner with that deflationary dilemma has a different um, viewpoint on, you know, what is a good financing structure. And for us, PPAs work. They do. They really do. But only for a very small part of the market. The owner user, the single tenant, you know, high quality credit off takers. Those, those work all day long on PPAs. And to be honest, the majority of those projects have already been built. Uh, 80% of the commercial real estate space, though, is multi-tenant. It is uh, not credit grade. It's all about occupancy risk. And, um, you know, there's a, there's an immense opportunity. It's, it's really what I'm trying to get to, I guess. So. Have you have you guys quantified kind of how big the opportunity is in the uh, energy rights space? I mean, you might have already mentioned it previously, but 80, 80% of commercial real estate exploited now is, I mean, how big is it? So that's a great question. So uh, let me take a step back. The uh, our, our company was lucky enough to be part of the REACH Accelerator program uh, a couple years ago. They are uh, run by the Second Century Ventures, which is associated with the National Association of Realtors. And we were fortunate enough to be able to work with First American Title on a project to determine what the value of energy rights are based off of existing commercial real estate data. Uh, in doing this, we found that in California alone, we're looking at a $300 billion uh, development cost required to develop out energy rights on commercial buildings. Uh, in the United States, we're anticipating that to be close to a $1.5 trillion number for solar only. So if you're, th- if you're talking about adding storage to these projects, it's at least a $4.5 to $5 trillion investment opportunity. Now, obviously, every single project is different. Every single building is unique. And every project is going to have different returns. But if you're looking at every building as an energy rights opportunity, then, you know, that's the scale that we're really talking about. And, you know, we'd be happy to talk to, to folks about how we got there. But we're also um, in the process of doing a press release on that on that project with First American and, and showing what the estimated value is in, in California specifically. And then, you know, going to be working on how it works in other states and also in other countries, because energy rights exist anywhere that um, is based on English common law. So we were in England, London uh, last year. We were, you know, we're often uh, one of our partners is out in Australia for the next month. So we're going to be talking with folks out there. Uh, luckily, Reach is an international organization that's helping us kind of, you know, uh, leverage their their network and their relationships, but you know uh, globally with you know with COP26 uh, happening a few weeks back, one of the things that I was very interested in was that the numbers that they're talking about investing, the numbers that everybody is 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 discussing with regard to carbon offsets. I mean, I think it's a B of A came out with a, uh, a number that it was 7.6 gigatons of carbon needs to be offset in order for us to be net zero. Now. That seems like a big number, right? I mean, it's it's extraordinarily big in terms of you know the scale that's going to be required, but it also gives me like a, a really you know uh, specific goal in mind, right? So if we hit 7.6 gigatons, we are all carbon neutral. Okay, well let's back into that using existing technology, utilizing existing technology. If you're doing a megawatt and each megawatt is about one you know 1,500 you know tons of metric tons of carbon offset per year. Then what you're talking about is about 5 million commercial properties that can handle one megawatt over the next 10 to 20 years. So 250 to 500,000 properties developed per year can address the carbon neutrality or the carbon offset goals of COP26. I mean, 
there you go. Let's go. Right. I mean, there are <laughs> 5 million buildings that exist in the world that can handle one megawatt of, of solar. And, yeah. you know, obviously we need to do storage and other technologies as well. But, you know, from a simplistic perspective, it's there. We're ready. Yeah. No, that's 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 a perfect way to frame it. And exactly what I was looking for for a quantification. I think that's awesome. So, well, let's chat a little bit about kind of who your potential or best customers are. Who's who's best suited to, to use this uh, tool and any any current projects in the process? And yeah, touch on that a little bit. Absolutely. So the projects that we typically work on are the ones that most um, commercial solar folks you know, run away from. And that's where there's multi-tenants, multi-tenant situation with triple net leases. So any any property owner that has a, a triple net building can use energy rights development as an alternative to PPAs and leases and PACE financing. And in terms of, you know, the best customers, we're focused on property owners that have portfolios so that we can actually scale with them. We'll do a pilot program of three to five projects. And then when it works, apply it to the rest of their portfolio, because at that point, they would have seen how the process works. They get comfortable with the risks and kind of and actually see the rewards, right? So, yeah. from that standpoint, we've got a few videos on our website. Um, we've got a client testimonial. We've got an explainer and an intro, and uh, we're we've got a pipeline of projects that we're working on and hoping to develop in 2022 and beyond. Who uh, who do you need to partner with? Who's who do you need to talk to most at this point? It's a great question. And, and it's always a, a combination of, of, of two things. But the first and foremost, the biggest you know, obstacle is to, to find a pipeline of, of projects, right? I mean, realistically, projects and, and having shovel-ready projects are always the, um, uh, the holdup in terms of deploying capital and getting you know, infrastructure built. So that is our primary target is, is making sure that property owners understand what it is we're doing, making sure that they get the most value out of the energy rights development. And then it's a matter of uh, lining up with capital partners to make sure that the the, the money is there to, to deploy existing technologies. So we're not, you know, there will be a time where we can start experimenting with new types of technologies on the projects that we're doing, but that's not now. Right now, we're focused on taking technology that's been around for 50 years, and putting it in place and deploying it as quickly as we can on every property that we can get our hands on. So, Chris, one of the you know things that we're watching from the utility wholesale project perspective is what's coming out of the federal government, and you know the Build Back Better, you know, is, is a little bit rocky currently, um, but you know there are a few wholesale level uh, incentives that we're keeping a close eye on. And, you know, in that bill, what? Uh, what do you see as a big value boost uh, for your business model? Yeah, to be to be quite frank, you know, we are just excited that it's gotten to the scale that it has in terms of folks agreeing that it's necessary to to push, you know, incentives towards a new technology or into this next energy transition. You know, on a personal company perspective, because we're approaching it from a real estate point of view, uh, we are looking at the ITC and any subsidies and accelerated depreciation as value add opportunities for our financing partners. So what I mean by that is that without the ITC and subsidies and, and accelerated depreciation, we're still able to provide investors a five to seven current yield in year one. We're still able to provide them an eight to 12% IRR over a 10 year basis unleveraged without any subsidies or ITC or accelerated depreciation. So, you know, we're kind of in the, you know, 
in the strike zone for most investors that are looking at core infrastructure projects, long-term projects that are looking for a yield. That said, the ITC, the, the uh, subsidies and the accelerated appreciation just drive the demand for capital even further. So, you know, it, it's like a, uh, a rising tide, you know, lifts all ships, right? And and the be- Build Back Better plan for me is is that, is, is what they're trying to do is to try to, you know, raise the tide for everybody that's involved in the industry to try to accelerate the deployment. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just always, you know, kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning that was uh, highlighted at the conference for me, which is how and what, right? Like, how is it going to be deployed? What is going to happen? And hopefully, you know, it trickles down into the uh, the commercial sector, the CNI space, and and um, you know, the micro uh, infrastructure world too, not just the uh, the big company, big you know, uh, developer um, relationships, right? Sure. So ITC, that's investment tax credit, right, Saxon? That is correct. Chris, uh, we, we ask a lot of our guests these questions, so we'll kind of dive into those now. So uh, what, what's one thing about the energy sector that scares you or might keep you up at night? Oh, man. Uh, <clears throat> it's, a, it's an irrational fear. However, it is a fear, and that is a binary risk that exists in, in the energy industry. Because it's so highly regulated, because it is critical infrastructure, that deals with national security, uh, there is a real risk. I don't know how big, you know, probabilistically it's probably pretty small and I'm irrationally worried about this, but, you know, if there are too many problems in the energy space, you know, there's not, you know, there could be a, a, a potential situation where, you know, the state of California takes over or the, the utility, you know, decides, you know what, no more third party development, we're going to do this all in house, or the federal government comes in and says, you know what, we need to make this a national program and not just, you know, a, a municipality or, or utility district, you know, challenge. And from that standpoint, that's where a lot of the innovation and a lot of our opportunities would be crushed, to be quite frank. And so uh, we're hoping that, um, Everybody is still favoring distributed generation, distributed, you know, capitalism, if you will, uh, to to develop projects on a building by building level and and allow, you know, third party entrepreneurs to do so. Um, And that's really, you know, my hope and my fear at the same time. (laughs) I like that. you might phrase, you might characterize it as irrational, but uh, I think that's 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 fair. Yeah, I appreciate how you phrased that. Uh, a friend and I were pontificating about the implications of, you know, how how the world would change if someone set off a nuke in uh, Midland, Texas, and if the U.S.'s oil supply just totally, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I empathize. Very low, very low chance, but it's like, oh man, this would be really, this would be bad. <laughs> yeah. And you know, when when the 1% probability is a 99.9%, you know, extermination situation or you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. out of the water situation, it yeah. makes you pause for a second and, and have to contemplate it and, and make sure that, um, you know, you're doing everything you can to, to mitigate the risks. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, what advice do you have for uh, young professionals in energy? Uh, get started early. I mean, to be quite frank, I mean, there's going to be so much money coming into the space, if not already. Um, earlier this year, you know, we had uh, industry veterans talking about raising a $4 billion fund and thinking that it was like such a great thing. And I think we had talked about this a little bit at the conference, but the amount of money necessary to 
effectuate or facilitate this energy transition is going to be on the trillions of dollars, right? And so you're hearing towards the end of this year, private equity, growth equity companies raising 10, 40, 50, 100 billion. We're finally getting closer to what's going to be necessary from the private sector. And if you're an energy professional and you want to be a part of this, now's the time, right? Like go find those companies that are raising the funds that are interested in being part of the next energy transition and get started early because why not? That's I love that advice. I think that's why Saxon, myself, Carolyn, yeah, anyone that is helping out with our group and, and this organization is uh, doing what they're doing because we want to be a part of it. We want a piece of that. So. I appreciate that and obviously appreciate your guys' time and, and ability to talk a little bit about energy rights today. Yeah. Chris, if people want to connect with you, uh, how should they reach out? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Pollock, or you can re- uh, reach me via email, chris.pollock at eprsquared.com. And um, yeah, I'm happy to, to discuss or, or share any information that we've got. And, and uh, I'm super passionate about energy rights development. So uh, apologies if I rambled a little bit today. Uh, nonsense. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thank you, guys.